Well, I would invite you to return back to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. We're continuing our study in Acts chapter 9, or Acts, the book of Acts, looking at one verse. Last week, 30 verses. This week, one verse. And uh, if this is your first Sunday, we are not going through the book of Acts verse by verse. We are doing it thought by thought, but you'll see why, that this verse is an important summary verse, um, and, uh, and we've got to slow down and look at it for uh, today. You know, and as I was kind of reflecting on this verse and reflecting on this passage and, and, and what I think why Luke put it in here, uh, my mind went a lot this week to uh, a lot of the tragedies that have been going on around the world, particularly how Christians have been isolated in other parts of the world to be killed, executed by terrorist groups. And uh, Heather and I were talking on Thursday morning about a, uh, a, a refugee camp in Damascus that was attacked and, and people were killed. And, and I, w- I was thinking about that a lot this week and, and the international crises that are going on. And, uh, and as I think about those things, when those stories come my way, I don't know how you process them. How I process them is, is this, this way. I kind of stop and I, it's usually a moment where I take stock of my own life when I think about those crises. It's usually a moment where I kind of stop and I, I kind of ask myself, uh, what would life be like if, that, if I were living in that world, right? And I, of course, have this extra blessing that I can actually think about it this way because other people don't and they can't think about it this way, but, but we have this blessing. And for me, I stop and I think about how all of my priorities of life would completely change if I were living in one of those places where uh, you know, I knew that there were people out to kill me. And uh, if I was living in one of those places where the people are willing to risk their lives just to get on a boat that is way over, you know, too many people on the boat, and, and the risk of getting on that boat is greater than the risk of staying in their home. Or, or, wait, I said that backwards, didn't I? The risk of staying at home is greater than the risk on getting a boat that will probably capsize. And, and all of those, those things, those fears and those worries, and I, and I always ask myself, how would that change my priorities? How would I redefine life? How would I redefine everything from what I think about God, the church, my friends, my problems, my agenda? Like if I were just in that horrible situation, how would that revamp my my thinking? I always think that way. And then I think to myself this, I have this kind of strange thought where I think, could you imagine if you had a crisis exchange program, okay? where some, you get to switch places with somebody who's having a crisis, okay? And so somebody's going to take your crisis, and you're going to take their crisis. And so all of a sudden, somebody's going to say, okay, I will come, and I'll take your problem, but you're going to go into Africa, and you're going to take my problem, okay? And so we're going to exchange problems now. The question I would have is, um, how prepared would we be to swap with those people who are living in some of those places? The other question I ask is, how would somebody who were going to take my set of problems, how would they take advantage of some of the blessings that I have before me? You know, what would happen if we switched? Now, these are all these kind of theoretical questions that, you know, shows how relatively easy we have it in many ways because we actually have the time and the space to think about these things. But at the same token, I think about these because I stop and I I ask myself, um, I'm here, God placed me here, and I want to make sure that I'm taking advantage of what God has placed before me. 
that my life and my world, that I am not so caught up into things that I, I miss what God has given me and the opportunities I have to learn and to grow. And, uh, and the reason why I thought about all this is because this particular verse, 931, is a summary verse. And we'll talk about what that means in a minute. It's a summary verse of, of Luke where he is describing what's going on in the church in Judea and Samaria when a time of peace came upon them. The pressure had ended. The pressure of losing their life had ended. They still had problems. But the pressure of the governmental pressure where somebody was going to come and arrest them and throw them in jail and possibly execute them for their faith had lifted. And now in that state of peace, what happened to the church? What did they do? How did they use that peace? How did they use that time? And I thought about that. I thought, you know, this is really a timely verse for us to be thinking through. Because in many ways, now I know that not all of our lives are going great right now. And there are very real crises and problems going on, even in our own lives. But in another way, we do have a sense of a relative peace in that, you know, there aren't guns pointed at our head and people trying to cut our heads off. And so what are we going to do with that? How are we going to use that? What should our values be as a church? And I think in this, in this passage, we get challenged to see that. So we're going to examine this passage today, and we're going to see what happened, and hopefully maybe get some, some, some values clarified in our own lives. What's important, what's not important? And that's kind of been my prayer for this whole thing. How do we understand what is most important in this world? And what should we really be focusing on? Because times do get tough and, and, and trials are the norm and peace is not the norm. And so we want to make sure we're standing strong in the face of that. And, and what did God do in this church to prepare them for this? So we're going to see all that today. But in order to do this, let me set the context of what we're looking at. Because we've got to see how this verse fits into the flow of Acts. And so I'm going to just take a moment and review because we are basically through the second big chunk of Acts. Not chapter-wise, but thought-wise. The book of Acts is divided into three sections. And we've just completed the second section. But let me just show you these sections here so you can get them by review. The first section of Acts begins in chapter 1, ends in chapter 6, verse 7. And it's the church in Jerusalem. The mission in Jerusalem, what they were doing to share the gospel within Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, going all the way to the passage we're at today, it shows the church as it went to Judea and Samaria. As the mission moved out of Jerusalem, what happened? That's the second section. The third section of Acts begins in verse 32. Lord willing, we'll look at it next week. It goes all the way to the end of the book, and it's how the church moved into the world. The book of Acts just follows the flow of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the world. Luke just used that, I think, as like an outline to show what happened in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the world. Now, what Luke does is at the end of each section, he gives a summary of the churches and what was going on. So in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, we have a summary statement. It's the first summary statement. Then in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, is the second summary statement. And then in Acts 28, 31, is the third summary statement. So he has these summary statements, and what his intention is, is to say, now let me just describe to you what was going on in the church. 
give you a definition of the church. So that's, that's how Luke is, or Acts is structured. Now just briefly, I'm going to just deluge you with a whole bunch of information. It'll be up on the screen. You probably won't be able to write it all down. But we can put it on the internet or we can email it to you if you want it. Or it's just in your study Bibles if you have a study Bible as well. Most of these are just headings from those type of things. But here's the way it looks. That first section we looked at, the church in Jerusalem, section 1, here's what happened. We studied all of this. We saw the coming of the Holy Spirit. We saw the first sermon of Peter. We saw the first converts. We saw persecution come. We saw the church praying for boldness. We saw a satanic attack come upon the church. We saw second persecution and internal conflict. That's all that we study. That's what's going on. That, that's what's made up the mission in Jerusalem. Okay. Now, then Luke gives the summary statement in 6-7. He said, now, given all that was happening, he said the word kept spreading, disciples kept increasing in number, and priests began to follow. So he says, that's what happened. This is what was going on in Jerusalem. So even though as the mission was going out in Judea and Samaria, this is what kept going on in the Jerusalem church. Then we moved, and, and just a couple things just to notice. In that particular thing, and one of the things we observed when we studied it, was that God used preaching, he used persecution, and he used internal conflict to carry out his mission. I wanted to point that out to you because there's comfort in that. He used people declaring the word, he used external pressure and conflict and internal conflict, and the reality of life is this kind of summarized ministry today, doesn't it? Right? We're preaching the word, declaring the word, persecution's coming against some believers, and we struggle even from within to get along. But yet, in the midst of that environment, they kept advancing, because God uses all things. Now, the second section, again, just to review, so we, we, we can kind of know where we're at. The church in Judea and Samaria, what did we study? We saw the sermon and the, and the stoning of Stephen. We saw the persecution of the church by Saul. We saw the expansion of the church into Samaria by Philip. The expansion of the church into Judea by Philip. And the conversion of Saul. So that is what we looked at there. And again, we saw God use persecution. God raising up people from within the body to carry out the work and the expansion. It wasn't led by the apostles. Now it's being led by, 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 by people that the, that the congregation acknowledged. These are leaders. And they were the second tier leadership that went out. And, and the mission is extending. And this leads us now to verse 31. A summary statement. A summary statement of the church in Judea and Samaria. And in that summary statement are a set of values that I think are important for us to think about. And I like to say it this way, how we can take advantage of the political peace we live in. That we can take advantage of it and, 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 and maybe recognize some of the core values that are in this passage here. So there's five points. They're there in your bulletin. We're going to look at just the five things that, that are in this verse. The peace, the fact they were built up, the fact that they feared the Lord. They had the comfort of the Spirit, and they advanced. We're going to see all of those things today, and I do hope that it, it does do some kind of values, evaluation of our lives. It, it has for me. But let's begin. Let's look at the peace. First thing he says there in verse 31. He says, So the church 
throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. Simple statement. It's following up the reality that Saul has been converted. The great enemy, the one who wanted to kill people, is now an ally. The person who tried to stop the gospel is now going to be the proponent who's going to take it into the nations, into the world. That is the power of God. One observation we made last week as we looked at the conversion of Saul is to remember God is the one at work in people's lives. We cannot define people solely by their sins, right? If we defined everybody by their sins, and that's all we define them by, no one could be converted, right? Not even you, not even me. But it is God's mercy, it is God's grace. He can take the greatest enemy and make them into the greatest ally. That is the power of God. That is the hope we have. But I want you to notice something about this peace. Peace, as we'll study in Acts, is not the norm. Peace is little seasons that show up. Little moments when God gives the church a chance to do something. And I want to say this about peace. How you manage the times of peace will determine how you survive the times of trouble. That is so important to catch. The church was able to sustain itself through much conflict because in the course of the peace, they grew in the right way. Our problem, oftentimes, is that we don't manage peace correctly. We don't manage the good times. Good times for us, oftentimes, because we have so much, and we are so rich in our culture, that we can just use peace to serve ourselves. Uh, You know, there's an interesting point that I I believe is true. I'm just kind of somewhat layering this on. This isn't what Luke's point is. But, but I've, I've come to the conclusion that people learn values, and children, I'll say it this way, your children learn your values, learn values from you, based upon how you use and manage the good times of your life. When the good times, the easy times come, is it about me and how, what we're living for and growing individually and just taking advantage and having fun and playing? And then, and then the crisis comes, and now I can't handle the crisis. But it isn't at the crisis when you're breaking down that your kids are learning your values. Your kids are learning your values by how you're managing your peace. I really believe that. How will I take advantage of that? What are they picking up from me? Peace is a, is a gift from God to build us up Because he's left us as lambs among wolves. And every once in a while he gives us a space to get built up. So we're going to see now, how did the church use the peace? Okay? What happened in this church? What did God do? So this is our second point now. We move from peace to the second point of being built up. Notice what it says. The church had peace and was being built up. Now when you read that phrase, you might have a tendency to read it like a good American, as an individual statement. They were Christians, and they needed to be discipled and grow and learn about Jesus. And oftentimes we read our Bibles, we read it as individuals. We read a statement like that, like they just needed to learn about Jesus, learn to love Jesus, grow, be discipled, have a discipler. But that's actually not what the word built up means at all. It's not even remotely close to what the definition of being built up is. The word, it's actually one word, it's not two words, It's actually one word, and what it means is it means to be built into a house is what it means. So I want you to picture it this way. 
Picture that when the Chicago Bears were looking for a new coach, they hired me, okay? And I come up with this brand new strategy, individualized practices. The team will never be on the field ever once together until the game on Sunday. The quarterback will only throw just to no one. He's just going to have a big pile of balls, and he's just going to throw. And running backs are just going to have a big pile of balls, and they're just going to run up and down by themselves. And linemen, they're not really going to push against anybody. They're just going to kind of run around by themselves individually because the individual development of each player will mean that they will then come together during the game and be strong. Okay. You're smirking at me because you know that is the dumbest football strategy. You don't even know anything about football, and you know that is dumb. All right? If you're going to practice, you've got to be as a team. You can't handle the game if you're not a team. This is what being built up means. It means that the church grew together and learned how to manage together as a unit. They were actually committing to each other. Built up in the scriptures always means that. It is never just an individual statement that I got a discipler and I grew. It's I became part of the team. I learned my assignment and then I was with the rest of the team and we did our assignments together. We did them together. We worked together. We figured out how to do this together. It's a corporate statement. This is all over the place. A passage of scripture you could look at just another place is 1 Peter 2.5. Peter says, you're living stones being built up into a spiritual house. Same word, built up. The whole concept, you're built into this. What's interesting about Christianity is that Christianity is not just an individual reality. It's a corporate reality. You become part of the body of Christ. And during this time of peace, they didn't just say, I'm making decisions that's best for me. I'm choosing things that's best for my agenda, my schedule, my family, me, me, me. They said, you know what? We're actually going to adjust our life for the team. We're going to do this together because we are a spiritual house meant to advance together, work together, serve together, support each other. And when you have that kind of team mindset, you now are standing with someone and when the crisis comes, you are not alone. You're not alone. Some of the problems of our church and our culture is we're so individualized that when life starts to fall apart, there's no one around us, right? Why isn't anyone around me? Because we don't really think in a family concept. We don't realize God uses terms like family, marriage, body when he describes the church. Corporate terms, body terms. That's what's going on with the church. They're being built up. When we don't have that and we're living outside of that, we actually lose the stability that God gives to us. And when we don't use the peace to say, I'm going to commit to you as a body because we're the body, we're together, we got to do this together. If I don't do that and then the trials come, then I'm standing by myself. And I don't need to stand by myself because we have each other. We can do this. So this is what's going on. They're being built together. This, there's a second thing that's said, okay? So we kind of hammered that out there. So they're being built up. They're being built up. They're being into a, a spiritual house, built together. Would probably be a more accurate translation of that. Then it says, and walking in the fear of the Lord. Now this is a really interesting statement, to walk 
in the fear of the Lord. I'll give you a little Bible study tip. Generally, if you see the word walk or walking in the Bible, you can generally, 99% of the time, uh, in, in, in your brain, just insert this concept, as a way of life. That's what walking means. This is something as a way of life. So you could translate it kind of in a very loose translation. The fear of the Lord was a way of life for these people. That's how you could translate it. Now, what is the fear of the Lord? Proverbs 9, 10 tells us it's the beginning of wisdom, but that still doesn't tell us what the fear of the Lord is. What is the fear of the Lord? Well, I want to explain to you what the fear of the Lord is and and, and explain it to you a little bit from a backwards way so you understand the essence of it. In uh, Romans chapter 8, you don't have to turn there, Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, there's a big section about the mind. I'll just summarize it here. Paul is basically saying this. He says, now the natural mind is hostile towards God. And what that means is this. God lays out a plan. He lays out an agenda for your life. He lays out an agenda for your day. And all of a sudden, that agenda is not going the way you want it to go. Right? That's a typical day, right? That will be tomorrow morning. You will get up. You'll have an agenda. But nothing will work the way you want it to work. Now, the natural mind is hostile towards God. So the natural mind says, this isn't fair. This isn't right. And starts getting mad. Pounding the fist on the table. I'm not getting my way. Throws a temper tantrum. Right? Instead of saying, God, this is your plan for me today, help me endure, help me to walk through it with, with grace and mercy. Instead, I get mad, I get selfish, I throw temper tantrums. Emotionally, maybe you don't see it, but inside I'm like, Argh! right? That happens. You're all looking at me like I'm the only one that goes through this. I know you go through this, right? The natural mind. The natural mind is hostile towards God. The natural mind doesn't want to follow God. That's what he's saying. It can't follow God and has no desire to submit to God. Now, it might want to be religious. It might want to be spiritual. It might want to offer a sacrifice at a temple. But what it will not do is say, God, you're God and I'm not. God, you rule the world. I don't. The natural mind really, at the end of the day, wants to be in charge. That's what we want. We want people to obey us, submit to us, follow us, you know, everything from traffic to our bosses to whatever. That's what we want. Paul's saying that's the natural mind. When the Spirit of God takes over the natural mind, all of a sudden that mind changes and that mind says, God, you're God and I'm not. God, your way is the right way, not my way. That change is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is when your brain, when your will finds itself in willful submission to the Lordship of Christ. You are in control. You're everything. I'm nothing. I deserve nothing. I will follow you. The natural mind wants to dictate to to God. The person who walks in the fear of the Lord wants to obey and follow God. So the fear of the Lord is the recognition that God is really God. It's not hostile towards God anymore. It's submissive to God. And the fear of the Lord opens you up to God's plan, to God's will, to God's direction. Because you're no longer fighting it. You're saying, I'll submit to it. I'll lay aside any claim to anything and I will be in submission to you. That is the fear of the Lord. 
He's saying what was going on in the church is that not only were they being built together, but they were falling under the submission of God, trusting in his plan, trusting in his way, believing that his plan, his agenda, his control, his sovereignty was everything in life, walking in the fear of the Lord. Now, this leads us to the next thing that was going on because it's connected to it. Okay, and so we're going to jump right into the comfort of the Spirit because these two fit together. They're, you know, it's kind of both sides of the coin here. Because the comfort of the Spirit is what happens when you fear the Lord. So let's look at it here, the comfort of the Spirit. When you think of the comfort of the Spirit, do not think about a rainy day curled up in front of a fireplace with an Afghan and a cup of tea. Okay, don't think like emotional comfort. The word, you know, unfortunately, you know, when you get real literal, sometimes our English terms don't carry the same as, as some of the other terms, the Greek terms. The word comfort actually means someone who comes alongside you and advises you. You could technically take the word comfort and you could actually translate it as lawyer, advisor, counselor. You could call it the counsel of the Holy Spirit if you wanted to. But yet we use the word comfort, and there's, there's a reason why, and I want to explain this to you. What is the role of the Spirit? Well, we know what the role of the Spirit is. We see it all over the Scripture. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 tells us one of the roles of the Spirit is He, he opens our eyes and illuminates truth to us. He gives us wisdom. And so I want you to picture this so that you can understand it. Let me use an illustration, and maybe you'll get the idea behind this. You can have a, a day like this, okay? You're in a church service, there's you know, several hundred people sitting in a room together, and a pastor's up there preaching, right? And he's, he's just going through the Word, just, just saying what the Bible says. And in that room, half the room sees the Word of God and says, wow, this was life-changing. And they leave, and they start making wise decisions with their life. Wise decisions with their marriages. Wise decisions with their children. Wise decisions with their, with their businesses and their work life. Why? And just one wise decision after another. Why? Because they're walking in the fear of the Lord and the very Spirit of God is now there illuminating truth saying, don't make that decision. Make that decision. Don't say that to your wife. That's really dumb. Say this. Don't deal with your kids this way. Deal with them this way. And the person's listening. They have, in essence, the kind of the picture, the counselor in their ear going, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Yeah, do that, do that. They say, yes, okay, this is the wisest. Other half of the room leaves and says, wow, that was a great sermon. But they're not walking in the fear of the Lord. So then they go home, they make the worst decisions every time they act. And you say, how can you make such bad decisions and this group make such good decisions? And yet they're both hearing the same passage taught. The answer, the comfort of the Spirit comes and is connected to the fear of the Lord. When you fear the Lord and you walk in submission to Him, the Spirit of God illuminates the truth. And the picture here isn't just that you would understand just only the literal meaning of a text, but that suddenly that text comes alive in your life. And suddenly that text becomes the very thing that starts helping you make the right decisions in your life. And the reason why the English translators like to use the word comfort is they talk about it this way. 
They say that what it does is the person now is walking in wisdom. They're walking in wisdom. They're walking in the comfort of making wise decisions because the Spirit is there illuminating and as opposed to the Spirit being resisted because someone just does not want to submit to God and is standing in rebellion to Him. So what they're saying about the church is that not only were they committed to being together, being built up as a team, so to speak, they then were growing in their fear of the Lord, walking every day saying, God, you're God. And as a result, the very Spirit of God was speaking truth and wisdom, and they were, they were suddenly making wise decisions and suddenly growing as being wise people. And then notice what happened. It advanced. The last thing he says, it multiplied. Simple point, right? It multiplied. The church grew in numbers. And not just numbers like one or two at a time. What does multiplied mean? It means exponential growth. It means, you know, two turned to four and... I'm no longer going to do any more math after that. Okay. <laughs> I know my line, my limits. <laughs> right? It just kept multiplying, though. You know what's interesting? I'm going to make a statement. For some, this could be a controversial statement. The church is intended to grow. Right? God did not leave us here to actually, like, retreat. He left us here to advance. This is why multiplication is there in act. It kept pressing forward, pressing forward, right? God said in Ephesians 1.10 that he did all this work of redemption so that he could unite everything under Jesus, things in heaven, things in earth. And the point of the church is that we learn to live and grow in such a way that advancement becomes the norm. And suddenly, people by the hundreds are being brought to faith in Christ in, in, in multiplication. And, and this is true because as you're growing together, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Spirit, what is going to happen? You're going to be aligned with God and His purposes. And His purposes are what? Well, He's left us here for what reason? Because He's saving people. And He's pulling them into this fold so that they could what? Fear the Lord, walk in the comfort of the Spirit, and be used to advance. And this would go on until when? Until the end of the age. Because that's when Christ said, I'm going to bless this thing until the end of the age, until I come back. This is what's going on, and this is the launching pad of what will be, as we'll see next week, Lord willing, a worldwide movement. A worldwide movement. So, what do we learn here? I think what we learn is a healthy church, right? A church, how do we take advantage of the peace we're given? Our little moment of relative peace that we have? By being a healthy church. And what is a healthy church? Four things we see there. Growing into a body. Submitted to God's word and God's agenda. Taught and protected by the Spirit of God. And advancing. That's a healthy church. That's what the commitment was. Or the values were. Or what God did amongst this church in Judea and Samaria. There's two ways I want us to look at this, and then we'll pray here. Two ways I want us to look at it is first, personally. Because there's no program that we could put in, right? We can't say, okay, now we're going to have our Jerusalem-Judea program, and our Jerusalem-Judea program has four steps to it. First, grow as a body. Second, right? It's not a program. It has to first begin with each person evaluating their own values. Will I be committed to this? 
Going back to the football illustration, I noticed you, know, you can have these like athletes, professional athletes that have just talent beyond compare. But they'll get cut from a team. And, and you, they'll find out, you know, why did you cut this player? Because you know what? He wasn't committed. He was drained in the locker room. He wasn't committed. You see, all the talent, all the skills doesn't matter unless the person's saying, I'm on the team. I'm going to work. I'm here. That is the starting point for, for me and the starting point for all of us. Will I say, yes, I want to be committed to those four things. I want to be committed to, to you. You are my church. You're my family. You're my body. I'm with you. We're going to stand arm in arm. Will I fear the Lord? Will I say, you know what? I will take God's agenda tomorrow. I'll take God's agenda. I'll submit to it. Because I want to be under the wisdom of the Spirit as He illuminates truth. I want it to yield forth in wisdom in my life. I want to walk in wisdom. And I want to recognize that if I'm not committed to advancing, I can't even sing these songs that we sing on Sunday. I can't offer songs of praise about His name being made known around the world if if I'm not committed to that. So I want to evaluate, are these my values? I'll take this even, that personal commitment one step further and even ask, and each parent in the room should ask themselves, would my children say, I learned these four things from me? Would they say that? Would they say, you know, because of my dad, I understood and valued the church and I understood and valued fearing God and I understood and valued what it means to listen to the Spirit and to, and to allow His truth to illuminate and, and to walk in that. And I understood the value of making the name of Christ known everywhere all the time. Is that my personal commitment in my home? That's the first question. On a more corporate level, I think we should say those four things should be about all that we do, not only here and how we run our church, but even how we support our missionaries and what goes on in the world and how we should be praying for them. We should be praying for our missionaries. We should be praying, God, when the Karises go to Canada, you know, may the church grow that they work in and may they be submitted to God's word and God's agenda. May your spirit just illuminate truth. They'd be wise and God, let that church in Cat Lake advance to 35 tribes in northwest Ontario. We should be praying for that. We should be praying for the Kellys. As Todd Kelly goes and travels the world training pastors in almost every continent on the planet, God, let those churches grow as a body and submit to your word and be taught by your spirit and advance for Milan and the Czech Republic. May his church be that way and may the ministry that he does in, in bringing the gospel not just lead forth to converts, but to churches of people committed to this that fear you, listen to your spirit in advance, should be part of our prayer narrative. Because this is what God did, and I think flowing from this launched a worldwide movement. So why don't we just pray to that end right now? Why don't you just bow your head with me? Maybe one thing that we could do together is that we could just take a moment, and even just in a quiet moment here, maybe take some personal stock of your life and ask yourselves, you know, uh, are those values in me? Do some soul searching and then convert that into prayer, not only for yourself, but for our church. Just take a moment and do that in the quietness of your heart.
God, these are, these are big things. And in many ways, all of us sit here having failed. We don't look at this list as a checklist that we say we have done, but we see it as something that our flesh fights against. Some of us are afraid to be vulnerable and open and connect and share and, and be part of a body. We're afraid of hurt. It's risky. All of us at some point in time are love our own agenda for our life more than your agenda. And in many ways we resist your spirit as your spirit tells us what to do and we kind of fight it. And sometimes it's easier to not think about the lost and the people in the world and bringing people into the fold because it just means more problems and we want to just keep things so that they don't change and comfortable for us. God, that's our flesh. We struggle with that. Lord, you're so merciful to us. You're so merciful to us that you give us time to process through this. But Lord, this passage is here and it challenges us to think through our commitments. What do we live for? How do we view your church? How do we view your lordship? Who do we listen to? What voice has our ear? What do we live for really in our community? Why are we here? Lord, these are big questions. But I pray, God, that, that through this your spirit would begin to push us and to think about committing to your body, submitting to your lordship, listening to your spirit and shining the light of the gospel boldly. And Lord, we want to see that happen in the world. Not just here, we want to see it happen with the Karises when they go to Canada, with Todd Kelly as he travels the world, with Milan, all the things that we have going on, Lord. God, I just pray that uh, your church would be one, fearing you, listening to your spirit, and multiplying. God, thank you for the moment we have to reflect on this. May we take advantage of the season of peace so that we can be strengthened for the times of trials and struggles. For those that are in those seasons of trials and struggles, may they, may they be reset back to what is most important and not fight against these very things that you've given to us to give us stability, strength, and wisdom. In Christ's name, amen.